What is up, everybody? This is Dr. Joe Armstrong. Today, we're kicking things off with a paper. We're looking at more feedlot stuff. I've been on a little bit of a feedlot kick lately when we're talking about papers and looking at things. A little bit of a resurgence of my interest in feedlot medicine, looking at everything that's going on there, trying to evaluate. And I think it's because I've been on a couple feedlots, trying to help with some issues recently. It's just brought up some papers that I've had to look up been learning a lot more about a couple different things. There's been an ongoing issue that we're going to talk about today where there's a little bit of debate within the veterinary community about what's going on with certain products and what we're doing with them. So there's constantly new research and data coming out that tells us either one side or the other, and we still don't have an answer. So we're going to talk about that as well. But it's just me, and I'm sorry to say you're stuck with just me this week. We should have Emily and Brad back next week. We're getting into the holiday season here, so it gets a little trickier for us to coordinate schedules with vacations and where everybody is. Hoping they'll be back next week and you won't be stuck with just me again. All right, let's dive right into the issue. I don't like beating around the bush, so we're going to get right to it. There's been some research, a couple different papers to show that potentially there is a reason that we may or may not want to give an intranasal vaccine around the time of arrival or even before shipment to a feedlot. Now, that's been up for debate about what this research means and what it looks like and some observations that have been made about what happens when we do give these products. There's been some connection between intranasals and increased incidence of finding Histophilus somni. So HSOM has been linked in some way I can't tell you if it's conclusive, it hasn't been repeated, but it's been linked in some way to the administration of an intranasal vaccine, just there's more found. It doesn't necessarily mean there's more disease present, but the proportions of the microbiome change and we do see more HSOM, at least according to this paper, one paper, when we give an intranasal around the time of receiving or transport to a feedlot. Now, that, that topic's been covered a lot. I'm not going to get into it. There's other podcasts that have done that topic, and we're not going to talk about that paper today. What I am going to talk about is a paper where we're looking at a similar protocol, and we're looking at what effect do intranasals have. That was kind of the goal of this study. The study we're looking at is called Comparative Effectiveness of Intranasal and Parenteral Vaccines for Prevention of Bovine Respiratory Disease in Feedlot Heifers. Study done in Colorado in collaboration with Five Rivers Cattle Feeding. I will link the paper that we're talking about today, which was done by Sass, Bryant, Blood, Hardy, Jennings, and Hughes in the show notes if you want to read it. I think it's a good read. I will also link that other paper I was talking about that talks about the potential of there being connection between intranasal vaccines and HSOM, which was done by Richeson. I will also link the podcast episode done by a colleague of mine with the American Association of Bovine Practitioners. I'll link that podcast in the show notes as well. So you have access to everything, make your own decisions. I'll give you my take on this paper, the one done by SAS et al. today. All right, let's jump in. There's four treatment groups in this paper. We're talking about basically different receiving protocols to decide Can we tease out if 
intranasals are hurting or helping or something in between and they don't hurt, but we're not sure they help. That was the goal of this paper, in my opinion. We had a bunch of heifers acquired at a sale barn. They were split and randomized at one feedlot to create 10 pens for each treatment group. So there's over 5,000 heifers in this study. They're all fed at the same place. We've got a decent amount of power because we have replicates. I really like the setup of this study. It's a real world working feedlot and this is how things happen on those feedlots. So I think it is very, very applied, which I always appreciate. Now, I think it's really difficult to talk about vaccine protocols without naming products. And it was done both ways in this paper. So I'm going to say actual products and we'll talk about what those mean and what was covered by those products. But I, I think talking about all the different ways that you can talk about things without saying the actual product is just honestly more confusing. So let me give you an example of how complicated it can be if we don't just say product and names. So one of the groups in this study was administered a multivalent parenteral modified live vaccine for infectious bovine rhinotracheitis and bovine viral diarrhea virus. And at the same time, they were given a parenteral clostridial bacterin containing Manhemia hemolytica toxoid, Clostridium shovii, Clostridium septicum, Clostridium novii, Clostridium sordelli, Clostridium perfringens, type C and D. That was a mouthful to say, and I could have summed it all up by just saying product names, by saying this group was given Bovashield Gold IBR BVD and One Shot Ultra 7. That's it. So for the rest of this podcast episode, we're going to talk about product names because it's easier and it's what the real world looks like. I'm not endorsing any of these products. I'm not saying these are the ones you should use, but these were the ones that were used in this study and that's valuable information. We have four treatment groups. We have a treatment group that received Bovshield Gold, IBR, BVD, and One Shot Ultra 7. We have a treatment group that received One Shot BVD, Ultra Choice 7, and Inforce 3, and then they were revaccinated with Bovashield IBR. We have another group that was given Pyramid 3 plus Pre-Spons and Ultra Choice 7. And then the final group got Pyramid 3, Pre-Spons, Ultra Choice 7, and Enforce 3. So the main thing to remember when we're talking about this paper is we have high-risk heifer calves coming into a feedlot between six and 700 pounds until finish. Everything was done as similar as possible between all the treatment groups the only thing that differs is what they received on arrival. They're not different weights at the beginning. And we'll get into, are there really any changes at all that we can tease out in this study between the different receiving protocols? So before we get going too far, let's look at what wasn't different. There's a lot of stuff that wasn't different in this study that matters. There was no difference when we talk about performance in the feedlot average daily gain, gain to feed ratio, finish weight, carcass data. There was no difference between any of the treatment groups. So if there's no difference in performance when we talk about average daily gain, gain to feed, efficiency, carcass data, we have to go straight to health data to see if there's any difference in health performance between these groups. So that's the main point of the vaccine protocol. Now, one thing that I look at when I look at a paper all the time is 
when they're looking at what is significant statistically, what are they using as their cutoff? Traditionally, the cutoff is 0.05 when we're talking about p-values to become statistically significant. Then trends or things trending a certain direction that could potentially more research and just need more numbers to tease out if it's real or not. Now, in this paper, they're using a different cutoff. And that can happen sometimes, and it can be justified depending on your power. But when we use a, a different p-value, it immediately sets up a red flag for me. Is that truly significant? And I'm not a statistician, but listening to statisticians that I trust that understand the cattle world, I tend to say that we're reaching when we start to use a p-value that's higher than 0.05. I think that is reaching when we say, so as different between these two groups. Make sure you find that when you read a paper and note that in this paper, they are using a different cutoff. They're using 0.1 instead of 0.05. In the discussion, they're actually using 0.105 or 0.11. I think that's a reach. Just note it and you have to keep it in the back of your head when you're talking about the results and the discussion. All right, back to the treatment groups. One thing pointed out by my colleague when we read this paper is that the treatment groups do not cover for the same pathogens. Now, stated in the paper, they are saying that they need a bare minimum or their bare minimum requirements include IBR, BVD, menhemia, and clostridial. So that's what they're saying the minimum is. And then they're, they're kind of treating that as, well, if we have coverage for that, then anything we add in addition is part of the experimental group. This is a tricky paper unless you read it yourself and you really dig into looking at it because when you hear it and you try to read the abstract, it's a little difficult to tease out what they did until you get to some of the tables in the body of show you exactly what happened. Overall, they're trying to compare parenteral or injectable vaccines to giving parenteral and intranasal vaccines just to see if there's any difference between the groups or if there's any problems with doing that. To compare a parenteral or injectable vaccine alone versus a parenteral plus an intranasal at the same time. Between all the groups in the study, there was no difference when it came to morbidity or relapses for BRD. There was also no difference between the groups when it came to BRD, case fatality, and death loss attributed to BRD. Now, here's where we get into one of those trends that we were talking about where there is potentially a difference, but we don't have enough numbers to really say either way. And there is no statistical difference between the groups, but we have a low enough p-value to say there might be something there and we need to do more research on this topic. So they're saying that death loss attributed to BRD tended to be less for the group that got Pyramid 3 pre-response, Ultra Toy 7, and Inforce 3 compared to the rest of the groups. The other piece that was noted to be different in this study is when they look at two of the groups in particular that were designed to be similar or as similar as possible except for the intranasal vaccine. So we got one group that got Pyramid 3 pre-spons plus Ultra Choice 7. And then we got another group that got the same thing 
And all they did was add Enforce to that protocol. When we compare those two groups, there is a trend, I'll say a trend, they're going to call it a statistical difference because it's less than their cutoff of 0.105. The p-value is 0.09. Total death loss was lesser in heifers or any of the animals that received the combination of the parenteral and the intranasal. That's total death loss. So it has that's BRD death loss plus everything else which includes digestive deaths, skeletal deaths, cardiovascular deaths, your genital deaths, and the infamous other category. Now, there's a lot of other statistical teasing out that was done to look at the lesser death loss categories, so basically everything that was not BRD. And there was no difference when we exclude BRD between the groups. And pretty much the conclusion from the authors is that it's all inconclusive. So big takeaway here for me is that this paper found that pretty much there's no difference between giving a parenteral by itself and a parenteral plus an intranasal at the same time. I think that's really valuable information and we have to be careful that because we saw no differences doesn't mean that there's no value. When we see no differences between something or we only see potential differences that can't be definitively said yet, what we're seeing is that we aren't hurting anything, probably, by giving an intranasal at the same time as a parenteral when we talk about high-risk heifer beef animals coming from a sale barn, because that's what was in this study. And that gives me a little bit of peace of mind if we do see protocols where we're giving a parenteral vaccine and an intranasal at the same time on arrival. It also doesn't tell us that it helps definitively. The other issue that I have, kind of feeding off one of my colleagues' comments when we're talking about what was covered by these vaccines, the intranasal vaccine protocols, the ones that had intranasals in them, cover for different pathogens than the other protocols that don't have the intranasals in them. So are we seeing a true difference between parenteral and parenteral plus intranasal, or are we seeing just a difference in pathogen coverage between the groups? Is a trend, or if there is a true difference that's there, is it because we're covering for different pathogens, or is it because of the intranasal nature of the vaccine? That's a huge gap in my opinion, because if I compare the two groups where they're saying there's a statistical difference in total death loss, I've got one group that's getting Pyramid 3 Presponse and Ultra Choice 7. And I've got another group that's getting Pyramid 3 Presponse, Ultra Choice 7, and Inforce 3. One group is being covered for IBR, BVD, Manheimia, and Clostridium. Other group is being covered for IBR, BVD, BRSV, PI3, Manheimia, and Clostridium. So am I seeing a difference in these groups because of an intranasal vaccine? Or am I seeing a difference in these groups because one is covered for BRSV and PI3 and one is not? If I'm being honest with the study design of this, I'm quite surprised that this wasn't covered. Why not? If you really want to give a fair comparison of what you're looking for, parenteral versus parenteral plus an intranasal, why would you not cover for the same pathogens? It doesn't make any sense to me. I welcome feedback if you have an idea on why it was set up this way or if by chance the author of this paper 
is out there and they want to talk about it, I would love to talk about it. Please get a hold of me, the Moose Room at umn.edu. I would be much more comfortable accepting any trends that do show up or any differences, if they are statistically significant, that show up if we had the same pathogen coverage between the groups. Because now I don't think there's a fair comparison here between the groups because we have different pathogens that are covered for and some that are not in other groups. So overall, we've found that potentially there is no harm in adding an intranasal at the same time as giving a parenteral or an injectable vaccine. Everything else, I think, is pretty inconclusive. We don't know if it helps. Now, last note before we get out of here. I really try to read papers before I look at affiliations associated with the authors. I think it gives me less bias going into the reading of a paper. Usually, you're going to read the paper and you're going to probably have some idea of the affiliations by the time you get to the end. But I think it's nice going in without knowing and not have a bias going in because of that. When I see conclusions that are a little bit of a reach, I tend to then go back at the end after making a judgment on the paper and looking through things and trying to be honest with myself about what I think. I then go back to the top of the paper and I look at the associations for each author. That can shed some light, I think, when you're really not quite sure, thinking that there's maybe a little bit of a reach happening. In this paper, authors were very honest about what they saw and said it's, it's inconclusive, and I think that's a fair shake. I think some of the statistics were a little bit of a reach. Again, not a statistician, but when we're trying to push a product and say that it doesn't hurt and it potentially helps to give this additional product and spend this additional money, and then that additional product and that additional money happens to be associated with one of the authors working for that product's company, yeah, I get a, I get a little cynical about that. I try to look at it last, and then I go back and I say, well, yeah, I'm on the fence about this. It doesn't look like it hurts, but I'm pretty sure it doesn't help. If this paper had really tried to use the data that we saw here and say you should be giving it, I would be very skeptical because of one of the authors having that association with the company. Now, there's a section in this paper where they talk about applications for the research. I really like that because I like having it nailed down to exactly what you can do with this information. I think that that's awesome to have a, a section like that. I think that's where we start to reach with this paper just a little bit. But the authors were very good about saying, this is just another tool in the toolbox. Use it as you see fit. It doesn't appear to hurt. I think that's fair. And with that, we'll wrap it up. Thank you for listening, everybody. I really appreciate it. If you have comments, questions, scathing rebuttals, those go to the Room at umn.edu. You can also call us, leave a voicemail, 612-624-3610. Check out our website, extension.umn.edu. Thank you, everybody. We really appreciate you listening. Catch you next week. Bye. Bye.